We're going to jump back into the series we started a couple of weeks ago. It's going to be our summer series uh, from Luke chapter 16 to Luke chapter 18. So you can mark your Bibles for the summer if you want. You can go ahead and turn there right now if you want to. But Luke chapter 16 is where we're going to pick back up today doing this series called Entrusted. And I'm just going to pray and ask God to speak to our hearts as we open up His Word here in a moment. Let's pray. Father God, we come into Your presence and we acknowledge that You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and that you reign victorious, that you are mighty to save, and that one day you will come back for us. But in the meantime, you've left us here, and you've entrusted us, and you've entrusted us with many things, with your finances, you've entrusted us with the life that we live, the breath that we have, with the spirit of yours living within us to transform us and to change the the people we come into contact with. I pray that that spirit would be evident in this time that we meet together right now, that it would permeate this place, and that you would block the enemy from being here. Please remove distractions. Don't let us believe any lies. Just saturate our minds with your truth truth. And in that saturation, will you please transform us? Please change us, God, that we would embrace it, not just know more, not just have a good time together for a little while, but Father, will you please make us different people when we leave here today? I trust you for that. I trust you that people's eternities will be different as a result of the word that we'll see today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, it's no secret that when you have valuable information, when you've got something that's, that's precious or that's sensitive, that you a lot of times want to keep it secure under lock and key or password or, or some way, maybe an encryption or a code if you're that smart with the computer stuff. And you've got all these things that maybe you'll use to keep your valuable information safe. And if you think about it, we see this in the movie. In the movies, a lot of times, they'll go to extreme measures to keep information secure. Or maybe you've seen different movies like Mission Impossible. I don't know if you've seen the one Mission Impossible. I can't remember which one it is, but there's a Mission Impossible where Tom Cruise has to sneak into like a military base. And there's a computer in the middle of like this, the most secure spot you could find on this military base. There's a computer that has sensitive information on it. There's only one guy that can get into the room. He has to do like a retinal scan to be able to get in there. And if his temperature gets too high, then the alarm goes off. And, and somehow they figure out a way to put something in his drink that he keeps having to go to the restroom. And he leaves the room. When the door closes, there's like an alarm that turns on on the floor. It's like weight sensitive. And so what Tom Cruise has to do is he has to climb through these air ducts, get to this room, take the air duct stuff off, and then kind of repel or pull his system down, but not touch the floor. And then get on this computer and get through the encoding, the encryption, and not make too much noise because there's a noise alarm. And then he starts to sweat. It's like the high drama moment. He catches his sweat so it doesn't hit the floor. And they've done a lot of things to keep this information secure. Or you watch other movies, and it's a pretty common theme. You watch movies like uh, The Bourne Ultimatum or Bourne Identity, these, these movies where Jason Bourne is searching after sensitive information. It's his own identity. He wants to know who he is. It's valuable information to him, but they're keeping it secret. And so he has to go through all these extreme measures, like driving a Cooper backwards, up and down aisles through Paris, you know, alleys that are all over the place. And they're always in these cool places. And there'll be people like sitting there, you know, sipping cappuccino, and then, you know, Cooper comes running through or whatever. And he fights people to try and get the information, jumps from a window of a building to another window of a building, beats some dude up with like a phone book. And that guy's got like machetes or something, ties him up with a phone cord, you know, puts him, anyway, does all this stuff to try and get this information that's being held so securely because it's vital information. Or maybe you've seen some of the Nicolas Cage movies, like he's got that one National Treasure movie. There's a code on the back of the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> That's an easy document to get your hands on, right? The Declaration of Independence. Kind of secure document. And he's got to get his hands on this in order to read this code so he can find the national treasure, get these like special spectacles so he can see this treasure that's out there. And these things are held top secret under like a vault, under lock and key with all the security. And those are extreme examples. But you think about the information that you have. And think about the things that are sensitive for you. And we keep it under code. Some of you will have a code on your cell phone that I couldn't just pick up your cell phone and use it without typing in some, some numbers or some letters that will open up your cell phone because you want to keep that information secure. 
and it's natural for us. It's normal for us. And we've got sensitive or vital information that we keep it under lock and key or password or code. You get passports. We put them in a safety deposit box. On your email even, I bet you have a, a password, whether you use Gmail or Yahoo or Microsoft. We use a password in order to get into it. Some of you even have a password on your computer in order to get into that. And with your debit card, you probably have a PIN number. It's probably not a number you want to volunteer for everyone here to have today because you want to keep that secure. Or you go to your bank account, and you've got numbers. Like this past week, I went to my bank account, I typed in my account number, and I had all these numbers I had to type in. Then there was like a PIN number, and I had a series of numbers that I had to type in for that. And then they asked me security questions. Have you ever had that happen before? They ask you these questions where you're supposed to be the only one that knows the answer. Things like, what was your name of your first pet? You know, what's your favorite food? What was your mother's maiden name? Where'd you go to high school? And they ask these types of questions. My problem was, I didn't know the answer to my own questions this week. I started typing in. I was like, this is where I went to high school. And it says, ask me the question again. I'm like, that's where I went to high school, right? Like, did I spell it wrong? What happened? They didn't do very well there. But I type it in again, and it doesn't work. And then it's like, what's your favorite food? And I'm like, what was my favorite food 10 years ago when I started this account? You know, I can't remember. It's so tricky in setting it up, I tricked myself. I couldn't even get to my own information. Because it's true that we keep these things secure under lock and key. Sometimes we lock them in safety deposit boxes. We put passwords on stuff. We encrypt things when it's sensitive, when it's valuable information. So one of the things I find incredibly interesting about our God is that he's got the most valuable information in the universe, information that could transform not only a life, but an eternity. And do you know where he puts it? Not in a vault and not with a password. You don't need a key to get to it. He puts it according to the scriptures in jars of clay, puts it in us. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, or 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says that, that, that we've got this treasure, and he's talking about the truth, the truth of the gospel that transforms lives. We've got this treasure in vessels like us, jars of clay, broken vessels, flawed vessels, fragile vessels like us. He's entrusted us with his truth, the most important and most sensitive and most life-transforming information in the entire universe has been entrusted to us. And so the question becomes for us, are we trustworthy with the truth that we've been entrusted with? That's the question we ask ourselves today as we jump back into Luke chapter 16. If you have your Bibles, we're in Luke chapter 16, and we'll start reading in verse 14. And remember a couple weeks ago when we started this series, I told you the overarching question for this entire series, regardless of what we're looking at that we've been entrusted with, is are we trustworthy? And remember what Jesus started talking about in chapter 16 and verse 1, he was speaking to his disciples. Those are the people that he's going to entrust with all kinds of resources to carry on the revolution that he's starting when he comes here, lives a perfect life, dies on the cross for our sins and raises from the dead and then entrusts us with life, with breath, with money, with all kinds of resources, with the spirit of God, with everything that we have, with the truth of the gospel. And these people are trying to learn what this is and he starts off by talking to them about money. And verses 1 through 13, remember, we're about money. And what Jesus says, if I can't trust you with money, with filthy mammon, with lucre, as the King James calls it, if I can't trust you with that, with some dollar bills, y'all, if I can't trust you with that, how can I trust you with true riches? And do you remember what true riches are? True riches are lives that have been transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. And so he's handing over to you a new life. How can he trust you with baby Christian with a new believer? How can he trust you with someone whose life's been transformed? He can't even trust you with money. And remember those lives that have been transformed. That's true riches. That's treasure that we put in heaven where thieves can't steal and moth and rust can't destroy. Those are the people that will welcome you to eternal dwellings. See, our eternal destiny will be different based on how we invest our resources here. And he teaches us the foundational truth that money is a means, not an end. Money is a means, not the ultimate goal. There's a greater goal for the glory of God, for lives to be transformed by Jesus Christ and how we use our money will dictate what happens with that. 
And money's not only a means, but money's a test. And not only is money a test, but money is a master, he said in verse 13. And right after he says that in verse 13, look what happens in the Gospel of Luke in verse 14. Now we've got a new audience, the Pharisees. Remember in verse 1, Jesus was speaking to his disciples. Now he's speaking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. The Pharisees who loved money, Luke tells us, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. The law and the prophets, that's the Old Testament scriptures, that's Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and the rest of the Old Testament. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John, that's John the Baptist, he's a transition, and now the gospel with Jesus Christ comes. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. It's easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law, of the truth. And here Jesus is speaking to them now, not just about money, but now he's speaking to them about the truth. And he's changed audiences. He's gone from speaking to his disciples, his learners, those who are eager to know what it really is to follow Jesus, to now the Pharisees. And oftentimes when we talk about the Pharisees, we talk about the Pharisees as Jesus' enemy, as the bad guys in the Bible. But you've got to remember the way that the common people looked at the Pharisees was these guys were the pillars of the truth in their community. These guys were considered the stewards, the ones who had been entrusted with the truth. They memorized the truth. They meditated on the truth. Whenever the synagogue was open, whenever church doors were open, they were there to hear the truth, discuss whether it was a guest speaker, whether it was the local pastor, whatever. They were there to hear the truth. They were in small groups about the truth. They taught the truth. When somebody wanted to know what God thought and they wanted to hear the truth, they would go to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the gatekeepers of the law. They would teach the truth and how to apply the truth. They claimed to love the truth. They came to live by the truth. Here's the problem. They never embraced the truth. Believed it, they taught it, they didn't embrace it because when you embrace the truth, what the truth does is it transforms your heart. See, the truth has this transforming power, God's truth, this treasure, this power of the gospel that's given to us as jars of clay to transform us internally, and that's our first point. The, the truth transforms our heart, and we're talking about internal transformation, and the problem for the Pharisees is that wasn't taking place. As much as they said they loved the truth and lived by the truth, that they had never been transformed internally at the core level, at the heart level, by the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this idea that, that when truth gets in us, it transforms us at the internal level and it impacts the rest of our lives. and It impacts in such a way that you see it. That's not a new concept for us. You just think about that concept on a, on a regular, on a daily basis. You see that if you put things in, they can have a transforming effect on you as a whole. Like uh, This week was a glorious week in the Lear home. My wife started to learn how to bake better. She's been a good cook for a while, but now she's learned how to bake. And I don't even like sweets, but she made these chocolate chip cookies. And I was like, glorious day. Like, hallelujah. They were good. It was like, I started wanting to reward myself. I've heard that's bad to do with food, but I was like, if I, if I do this, I'm having a cookie. You know, it's like good stuff. And you know what? You can put a cookie in and it'll transform you. It can have that effect. We'll just see what happens in the months ahead as she continues to bake. And you see other things that you can put in you that can transforming effect on you. There's something internally to you that can change you. Like this week also, I, I woke up and I had a stiff neck. I woke up injured. <laughs> I don't know what happened. When I was younger, I didn't used to get injured while I was sleeping. Like, can there be a less active thing that you're doing than sleeping? I woke up, I told my wife, I said, I must have been having a, like an intense dream. There must have been like ninjas or something. Because I woke up and my neck was hurt and I was moving like a robot. I was like, yeah. 
you know, Tin Man or something. I'm, I'm moving around, and I got real irritable because of it. And Shannon would say something to me, and I'd turn to her, <laughs> like the whole body, and turn to her and get grouchy with her. And then she told me I need to take some ibuprofen. I took, some ibu- I took several ibuprofen, and I put them in, and it had this transforming effect on me because all of a sudden I became pleasant to be around. <laughs> People wanted to talk to me again, her, and, and my back didn't hurt so bad. And I put something in, and it had a transforming effect. It's like the, those little five-hour energy drinks. Jason Tovey, our shepherding pastor, and I were talking about it this week. Those things you see at the gas station, I don't know what they put in those things. I haven't tried one yet. But how amazing is that? If you could drink one every four hours, think about it. You'd never go to sleep. It's a five-hour energy drink, so you drink it, and if you drink one another four hours from now, you'd be like superhuman ability to stay awake. What do they put in that? There's something in there that's doing something internally to you that's impacting you, it's transforming you. And that's what's supposed to happen with the truth. Is that when the truth gets in you, not that you believe it, not just you acknowledge it, but when you embrace the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it has a transforming effect that should change your life. And what happens here in this passage is Jesus is exposing that their hearts haven't been changed by the truth. They know the truth. They say they love the truth. They've been exposed to the truth, but their lives haven't been changed. And you see what happens here, trying to imagine what it's like to be these Pharisees. They've just heard Jesus teaching about money. Now, in order to imagine what it's like to be the Pharisees, you must understand their thoughts about money. Their teaching was, and they based it on some Old Testament scriptures, and it wasn't just like late night TV preachers taught on this, but the taught this, that if you had material wealth in your life, it was a sign of God's favor on your life. It was a sign of God's divine blessing. And so what it was, it was proof that you were righteous, that you were doing the right things. And so the way that God would bless you, they said, was that if you did the right things, you'd have material wealth and you'd have health. And so what they ended up saying was that also if you had bad things, if you couldn't walk, if you had leprosy, if you were blind or whatever it was, it was a sign of divine curse. And so something happened, either you sinned or your parents sinned, but there's some reason why God's not favoring you. And so here are these men, they're very wealthy, and it's proof that God loves them. That's the way they teach it to everybody else, and that's what they probably genuinely believe. And they didn't even have late-night TV guys. Like, there was nobody saying, hey, if you believe in Jesus, you'll get a Mercedes. (laughs) Believe in a guy who has no place to lay his head, and you'll get a Mercedes. Figure that out. But anyway, they're listening to Jesus, and Jesus is teaching Jesus, this guy who's the son of a carpenter, comes from Galilee. Can anything good come from Galilee? And he's got no place to lay his head. And he's telling us about money in verses 1 through 13. And then in verse 13, he says this, you can't have two masters. You'll love one, you'll hate the other. You'll be devoted to one, you'll despise the other. Now try and imagine what it's like to be those men and to hear that taught. And they're teaching everyone else that the way, the way that you know if God really loves you, if he really has favor on you, if he's really pleased with your life, is that you'll have wealth. And these are very wealthy people. And you know what Luke tells us in verse 14? They loved money. Money was central in their lives. They bowed down at the altar of money. Now, they didn't literally sing songs to money, and they didn't literally get down on their knees to the mighty dollar and do that. But if you looked at their lives, what you saw is they loved money with all of their hearts. All their desire was to get more. And all of their minds, all of their thoughts went towards having more money and where to move their money and what to do with their money and how to obtain more of the money. That money was an end, not a means. And they loved money with all of their strength. All their energy went towards that. And they loved money with all of their souls. They would forfeit their souls to gain the world. And they get confronted with how they're supposed to really use money. And it says in verse 14 that they were sneering at Jesus. (laughs) Have you ever had someone sneer at you before? Literally in the Greek, it means to turn your nose up at someone. 
We get snotty with you. Shannon and I went on our anniversary date a couple weeks ago, and we went out to this restaurant, ate dinner, and the food was good. It wasn't great. It was just pretty good. And we went into this other place, and we ended up talking to this guy, and he said, how was the food? But when he said, how was the food, he went like this. How was the food? Crinkled up no, shaking his head no. I'm like, it was good. Like, what are you going to do now? You know, he's kind of letting me know what he thinks without even saying anything. He's just crinkled up his face and shaking his head no. He was sneering about this restaurant. He's turning like he's too good for this restaurant. That's what these guys are doing to Jesus here. This, guy, this poor guy teaching us about money. And then Jesus confronts what's really going on here. He says, you're sneering at me. You know why? And look at the next part of the passage. Because you justify yourselves in the eyes of men. You've got the approval of everyone else. You've taught these things. And so now everybody else buys into the stuff. And they believe that you are the pillars of truth. And they believe that you are the most noble and the most righteous and the most blessed in our society. And so they believe all these things about you. And the reason why you act this way when I teach you something that's actually from God's word is that you're bothered because you've been so justifying yourselves. You've eased your conscience. And now you feel really good about you because you've got all the other people that are pleased with you. And you've got all the other approval of people and all the other, all the things you need from people, and you've forgotten what God's saying. And it's not because, it's not because you don't know the truth. These guys are the pillars of the truth. They just got really good at justifying themselves. And what do you think they would do to justify themselves? And think about it. Think about the things that we do. I think there are two main tactics that we use to justify ourselves. One is that we lie, we just straight up lie about stuff. And the other one is that we'll blame somebody else for it. And you think about lying. You know, something will happen, and it'll be, whether it's a bad behavior, a mistake, a sin, whatever it is that you do, and you, get caught, and you just lie about it. You even lie about what you think about it, and you start to believe your own lies. Like I was reading the other day an article about a celebrity who got caught with some cocaine, and she said, I thought it was bubble gum. <laughs> like the police officer's going to go, oh, since you thought it was bubble gum, just keep it, not no problem. What are you just lying? You didn't think that. No one thinks that's. I don't know their mind. I don't know their heart. But come on. Or we blame shift. If something happens and we're we're the ones that did it, we blame someone else. We blame some other thing. Or like I couldn't pay my bills because I didn't know the security questions. You know, I, I couldn't do whatever it is you need to do because you know your dog ate your homework or the computer crashed or you know the parents did something when you were young and so now you do this and it's genetics or you had a dysfunctional family. Welcome to Earth, like we all do. Anyway, you had problems, and so you blame stuff. I read an article this week about a guy in Japan. He's a political figure. I can't remember the title that he had, some minister of something. And he, is a, he had said some rude things to some people that had, uh, remember there was a tsunami and earthquake in Japan? He said some real rude stuff uh, to some earthquake survivors about them fixing their own problems and stuff. He got rebuked by the government for it. He was being interviewed the next day. And what he said was that it's because I'm a B-type blood. And B-type blood people just become irritable and impetuous, and those are big words that just code for they can be a jerk. <laughs> I read that, and I thought to myself, I got B-type blood. How awesome is this? I can go around and be a jerk. And be, you know, yeah. What's gotten into you? My blood. <laughs> just how I am. And we, we shift. We put blame on other things so that we don't have to take the blame. It's justifying ourselves. And we justify ourselves in the eyes of other people. And we get their approval. And I'll tell you what, you can get justification in the eyes of people. You explain your story, make it good enough. You'll find people that will tell you whatever you want to hear because they want to be liked too. And so they want you to like them. And that's what the Pharisees did. And these are the high prestigious people in society. And so everybody placates to them. Everybody lets them cover stuff up. Everybody lets them kind of get away with stuff. And they've been justifying themselves before men, but then Jesus confronts them. Look at what he says. But God knows your hearts. Now, we're such masters at justification, we even use that to justify ourselves sometimes. 
Have you ever heard that? But God knows my heart. Like somebody will be about to make some stupid decision and their friend will tell them, you don't do this, you're going to cause a bunch of problems. God knows my heart. But you don't realize what you're about to do? No, you do. You just don't want to do your thing. Or if you don't want people to judge you, you ever hear people quote 1 Samuel 16, 7? They might not know the reference, but they'll say, man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. And some of us, we've used that to justify our sin. If you've used that to justify your sin, I want to challenge you with something. Repent. Repent before God, and I'll challenge you with this. Go to the person that you said that to and seek their forgiveness too. Because they probably already know what you were doing. Reconcile that relationship. See, God does know your heart. The question is, what does he see? Does he see a heart that's being transformed by the power of his truth? Or does he see a heart that deceives itself? Does he see a heart that's wicked, that's filled with sinfulness? Does he see a heart that maybe has been exposed by the truth, but has not been changed by the truth? Because that's what he sees when he looks at the Pharisees' hearts. He sees people that have been exposed to the truth. Talk about being exposed to the truth. The Pharisees, these guys were the guys that meditated on the truth regularly. They were constantly in the synagogue. The doors were open. They were there to hear the truth. They memorized the truth. Many of them could quote sections of the law. Genesis, Exodus, you read that stuff? Leviticus, they, could, they memorized that stuff. They, had a, they knew the truth. They knew what the prophet said. They knew that truth. They knew that there was a promised coming Messiah. They knew that truth. If somebody had a question about truth, they would come to the Pharisees to get the truth. If they wanted truth spoken into their life, the Pharisees are the ones who spoke the truth. They had exposure to the truth. That wasn't the issue. And if you think about our lives, think about exposed to the truth we are. If you're hearing my words right now, you've had incredible exposure to the truth. You just think about the very fact that you know the English language gives you access to such incredible amounts of truth. I read the other day that since the invention of the printing press in 1450, 85% of all Bibles ever printed have been printed in English. Yet only 9% of the world speaks that language. Implication of that is that in America, on average, there are about four Bibles in every home. Well, 80% of the world has never even owned a Bible. Just think about how much access to truth we have. We've got truth on television. We've got Christian television, <laughs> blessing or cursing. There's some out there that's teaching the truth. And there's radio. There's Christian radio. You hear the truth. You've got Christian bookstores, and they might sell a bunch of cheesy stuff, but they sell some books that teach the truth. In fact, they sell Bibles there, and we've got access to Bibles. We can get online and find Bibles. We can find articles to, that have the truth. And in fact, I challenge, I bet you, if you went and looked online to see how many gospel-centered preaching churches have their um, sermons of the history of their church online, you could listen to for free online for the rest of your life. It doesn't matter how old you are. For the rest of your life, you could wake up every morning and just start listening to the sermons, and it would be free for you. We have access to the truth. And some of us, we've been in the church for years. And we've heard all the Bible stories, and we know all kinds of stuff that you're supposed to believe, stuff you're not supposed to believe, and you, got, you know all kinds of truth. And maybe you've been in Bible study, maybe you've been in Bible study fellowship, maybe you've gone to community groups, maybe you study the Bible on your own, and you've heard all this stuff, you've been exposed to this stuff, but have you been transformed by this stuff? See, the issue is not knowledge. The issue is transformation. And the thing for these men is they've been exposed to great amounts of the truth, but their hearts hadn't been transformed by the truth. And so not only does God look at their hearts, but then Jesus tells us what he sees. Look at what it says next. What is highly valued among men. These people were highly valued among men. They're, they're the ones that we trust. It's detestable. It's detestable in God's sight. That's a strong word. In the Greek, that word could be translated as an abomination. He looks at these men. He looks at their hearts. He says, your hearts, your lives are an abomination to God. 
That's what he sees when he looks at a heart that's been overly exposed to the truth and hasn't been transformed by the truth. The way this could be translated, idiomatically, if it was like an idiom, a saying, the way that it could be translated is it's like a stench in God's nostrils. Your heart stinks. That's what he's saying. It's detestable before God. And I was trying to think of a way to give you a word picture of this. I was thinking about the other day at our house, one of our daughters lost their sippy cups. I don't know if you've seen those sippy cups. They got lids on top of them and plastic stuff. They're like vacuum sealed. And you got you know, you really got to suck on those things to get something out of it. Well, she lost it for a couple days. And my wife said that she couldn't find it. And she didn't know what was in it. She couldn't remember if it was water or what it was, milk or whatever was in the thing. And we couldn't find it for a couple days. And so I'm like on mission now. Like I got to find this thing. It's like my job as the man in the house find this cup. So I go like through our minivan, find lots of stuff, but didn't find the cup and go up into the bedrooms. I'm looking under the beds. Underneath the crib, I found the sippy cup. I was all excited. I come downstairs. Shannon's in the kitchen. I said, I found the sippy cup. And she looks at me like, now what are you going to do? And now I got to open this thing. I set this story up for you just for a second. I've got a terrible gag reflex. Okay. When the dentist starts to put stuff in my mouth, I start gagging before she's even doing it. It's like, ooh, ooh, you know, Makes you feel like I'm going to gag right now. But anyway, I, I take the cap off this cup and I go over. And I didn't know for sure what was in there because it was like real thin at the top. But then there was these things that were popping up. And I think it used to be milk. And there were these chunks on there. And it smelled disgusting. And so I go to the sink. And before I can even dump it out, I'm like, ooh, ooh, ooh. I'm you know, jumping away from the sink. And my wife did what you just did. She started laughing at me. Like every time I get to the sink, I'm like, you know, I'm about to do hyperventilating and all that kind of stuff. Finally, dump this stuff into the sink. It was rot. It was sick. I never want to smell that again. It was detestable. That's what God's saying when he he looks at their hearts. It's like that. Disgusting. It's a stench in his nostrils. It makes him want to vomit. When he looks at a heart that's been exposed to the truth and hasn't been transformed by the truth. And so the question for us is, have we been transformed by the truth? Are we internally, as our heart level, being transformed by the things that we hear and the things that we know? Or is it just more information for us? And see, the problem for these men is that there's just information. They knew a bunch of things, and people could go to them for the answer, but their lives weren't being transformed. See, what happens when your heart is transformed, it transforms your life. That's our second point. When your heart is transformed, it transforms your life. The, the, the truth that is transforming your heart, it transforms your life. And so the way that you see whether your heart's being transformed is you look at your life. And you look at what happens in the rest of this passage is Jesus talking about life. And look at your lives is what he's saying to the Pharisees. And look at what he says in verse 18. It seems like this verse almost comes out of nowhere. And anyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is pretty straightforward, pretty blunt, pretty difficult teaching on divorce. Let me just say this about divorce in general too. This is not exhaustive teaching from the Bible about divorce. You read through the scriptures and you see from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament epistles, there's teaching about divorce. In fact, elsewhere, what you see is that Jesus actually says in Matthew chapter 5 and in 19, he talks about how there's an exception for divorce. It's when the person is an adulterer and there's an exception for divorce there. And then also in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the apostle Paul talks about if you're a believer and a non-believer abandons you, it's unthinkable in that time that a believer would abandon another believer. But if you're a non-believer abandons a believer, let him go. And so there's these exception clauses you see. This is an exhaustive teaching on divorce. What Jesus is doing here is he's saying, let's talk about your lives, men. Because these men had come up with teaching based on a verse that they had twisted from Deuteronomy chapter 24 because what they were in the business of doing was twisting the truth to fit their lives rather than allowing the truth to transform their lives. So they weren't the ones being changed. The truth was the one being changed. 
And what they would do is they took this verse from Deuteronomy chapter 24, and they came up with all these reasons why they said that God was okay with divorce. Let me read to you a couple of the reasons that they came up with. Why a man could divorce his wife. It wasn't okay for a woman to divorce her husband, but a man could divorce his wife if she burned dinner. Okay. If she made lousy food, which just you just decide whether it's lousy or not. Think about when you first got married. Anyway, <clears throat> if she uh, made food with too much salt. If she was spinning in the street and someone saw her knees. Like, who could imagine staying married to such a woman? <laughs> they saw your knees! You know, what happened there? If she says something unkind about her mother-in-law. <laughs> We're all out. You know, everybody <laughs> Infertility, not giving you a son. Or, if you find someone prettier in your eyes then what they would teach is that God was cool with you getting a divorce. And remember the context here. They justified themselves before the eyes of men, so other people were telling them this is okay. They felt okay about this because their friends were saying, this is okay. And what Jesus is saying is, it's not okay. And you might feel okay about it, and you might justify yourself before other people, but here's the deal. God knows your heart. And you know what's happening in your heart? In your heart, what's happening here is it's adultery. And you know the great news about that? Is it any sin you repent of, God forgives you of. But repentance means you stop and you turn back to him and you live a different way. You say, God, I acknowledge what I've done. I'm sorry for what I've done. I want to turn to you. I want to change. I want to be changed. And the problem for these men is they weren't being changed by the truth. And so what they do is they twist the truth. And so Jesus puts his finger on their hearts and he starts to speak about their lives here. And he takes a little bit of pressure off. And he starts to tell them this story, a parable uh, about two fictitious characters so they could then end up seeing themselves in the story. And look at the story. It starts in verse 19. And Jesus shares this parable with them. He's just spoken about their personal lives and now he says, there was a rich man. And he's going to share with us two characters. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores. And longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in and water and cool my tongue just a moment of relief, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. And Abraham didn't put it there. God put it there. And when you die, your destiny is sealed. It's irreversible. And he says, besides all this, there's, there's this agony, this, or this chasm between us. Well, you're in agony, and, and he's being comforted so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, and nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. That's what the rich man said. Then Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. They've got the truth. They've got God's revealed word, the same as you had, that points to a Messiah. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they'll repent. And Abraham said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, if they won't listen to the truth, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. 
It's not an issue of evidence here. It's an issue of heart condition, and their hearts are hard, so they're not receptive to the word. And he does it by showing them the same as the rich man and the poor man. The story that's given to us is this big contrast between the rich guy, and go back to verse 19 and 20, it says he had purple clothes. Those are clothes of royalty. He had the nicest clothes. He even had fine linen undergarments. This dude had designer underwear, okay? He's got nice clothes, and he lived in luxury every day. The idea was that he would eat gourmet meals at will, whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted it. The average common person in that time would have meat once a week. And this guy could have whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted. He's got a fat bankroll. This guy has money, money's not even an issue. And then there's a poor guy. His name is Lazarus. He's the only person that ever receives a name in a parable told by Jesus. And Lazarus sits at the gate of this man's home. And he's in terrible condition because someone has to lay him at the gate. He's crippled. Now, remember, if you're a Pharisee and you're listening to this story, doesn't God show favor to those who are wealthy? And this dude's loaded, the rich guy. And then remember, it's divine disfavor if someone has a disease. And so this man's crippled. Somebody sinned. Something went wrong. And he's here and he's begging and he's got these sores. And we don't know what the sores are like, but they're notable. I remember when my wife was a wound care nurse, before she, we started having babies and she became a stay-at-home mom, she'd tell me about these wounds, and some of the wounds were notable. I mean, she talked about wounds where you could stick half your arm inside the wound. And this guy doesn't have leprosy because he's begging in public, but he's got some notable wounds, and the dogs are coming and licking the wounds. Now, we might think that's some form of relief, because we think of dogs like man's best friend, like the fluffy collies in the labs you know, that are out there. But remember, in their culture, in this Jewish culture, in this time period, dogs were scavengers. We, they would view dogs like we view rats. Can you imagine rats coming and licking your wounds? And you're so immobile, you can't even get away. And a dog licking you, you'd become unclean. You couldn't even go worship at the temple. And then what happens, the twist in the story is both guys die. Now, if you stop the story there and you ask a Pharisee, who's going to heaven, who's going to hell? It's a no-brainer. But the story becomes scandalous when Lazarus is in heaven and the rich dude goes to hell. The question becomes for any Pharisee, why is the rich guy in hell? And so why is the rich guy in hell? Let me tell you why he's not in hell. He's not in hell because he's rich. In fact, if you look at the story, the first person you see that Lazarus is with is a rich guy from the Old Testament named Abraham, an incredibly wealthy guy. So it's not about money. So why is the rich guy in hell? And you can go back and you could read the story on your own today. Just go through and try and find sin in this man's life. And I could tell you the story and I could tell you about all the corrupt things he did to get his wealth, but I'd be making that stuff up. It's not in the Bible. But if you read the story, what you see is this man has one sin. There was a guy outside of his gate and he knows that this guy was outside of his gate because you see when he's in hell, he calls out to him by name, Lazarus. This guy's got everything going for him. He's got money. If money were an issue and that's how he got into heaven, he'd be all set. If family were an issue, he'd be all set. We know he's Jewish. He says, Father Abraham. If knowledge or being exposure to the truth, if there was a quiz to be able to get into heaven, you had to answer a Bible question, you just make sure you answer it correctly, then he would have this down. We see he's got theology because you look down towards the bottom of the passage and he talks about repentance. If he knows that his brothers need to repent, then guess what he knows? He knows there's a lawgiver, and he knows that we are lawbreakers, and that something needs to take place in order for that to be reconciled. And there has to be some form of redemption. There's got to be some form of restoration. He's aware of all these things, but these things haven't transformed his heart. 
And so you've got this man who's Jewish, he's rich, he's been exposed to the truth, he's got a theology, but he goes to hell because his heart's never been transformed by the truth and the power of the gospel, that reconciliation that takes place. He's never come to the point of repentance where he turns from his own way of living and he turns to God. And you see it in his life because when you're transformed by the truth, then your life is transformed. And here's a man, and the only sin you'll find of his in this whole passage of Scripture that there was a guy at his gate who he allowed to starve to death and he could have done something about it. That's his sin. You see that his heart was never transformed because his life was never transformed because when our hearts are transformed, it changes the way that we live. And when you get the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth of God in your heart, then God starts to give you his heart and you start to see people the way that he sees people. And so the question becomes for us, do we love people? You want to know whether or not your heart's being transformed? Do you love other people? The greatest commandment, love God with all your heart and love other people. It's a commandment. The second one's just like it. You got the passage in, in 1 John where it says, how can you say you love God if you don't love people? And I'm not saying do you feel sentimental about people. I'm not saying do you feel bad when bad things happen to people. But what do you do for other people? Because that's what you see is a fully vested, a fully engaged love for other people when you realize what's happened in your life. And so what does this look like? I'll just share with you a story of a woman in our church, Kim Charette. Some of you know Kim. And uh, some of you might even know her story, but Kim grew up with a dysfunctional family. She had an alcoholic father, um, talked about uh, very verbally abusive when she was a kid. She talked about in her home, uh, it was like walking on eggshells growing up in that house. And she talked about her, her one retreat, her one escape was that they owned a horse and she'd go out and spend time with this horse and find comfort in that time. And they went to church. If you ask her about it, though, she'll say that there was no real connection with God. They went to church, and here's the reason why, because their neighbors expected them to go to church. And so they went to church, kind of so that everybody sees things the right way, right? And, and they go to church, but it's a mess at home, and her heart's breaking. And then she grows up, she leaves the home, she says in her life she sought everything the world would tell us to seek, money, relationships with other people, possessions, and there's still an emptiness. And in 2002, she placed her faith in Jesus Christ. And I wish I'd tell you right at that moment, then everything got better and everything was fixed. But she started a journey at that point. And in 2005, what took place is her mom passed away, and then her dad severed the relationship. He walked away for good. And it sent her on a journey to figure out what it really is to have God as your father. And she started to realize some of those things that Tony taught us last week, what it means to be adopted, to be a daughter of the king, to have access to all spiritual blessings, what it looks like to really be transformed by the power of the gospel. And she did that through a relationship with an older woman that had been walking with Jesus for longer than her and by studying the scriptures. And, and she starts to do this journey because she's in this dark place in her life. And she realizes who God is as Father and what it is to truly have a loving and perfect Father who would give everything to have a right relationship with you. And she embraces this relationship with the Father. And what she does is she doesn't just revel in the fact of all the things that God has done. And he's set her apart and she's a royal priesthood, a holy nation. She's God's representative here on earth. And she doesn't just say, thank you, God, that's so wonderful. But the natural outcome of that is she starts to look around. Now, what do you want me to do? As a result of what you've done for me, what do you want me to do? And she looks around and metaphorically she sees that there are Lazaruses in the community. There are kids that were like her. They're hurting. They've been abused. They've been verbally abused and sexually abused and physically abused and there are people that are sick and, and there's not a lot of hope. They're terminally ill and she looks around and she sees there's kids, their parents are going through divorce and they're just, they're, they're confused and they're lonely and, and what she does is she starts reading a book. She ends up realizing that you could use horses to present the gospel and kind of merges her story and her past together and redeems it for his glory and so what she does is she starts a ministry called Hope Reigns here in Raleigh. 
And four days a week, it's open for kids to be able to come that are hurting, whether they're abused or going through difficult times or physically ill or whatever it is that's taking place. And they find comfort in these horses and take care of these horses. And then Kim shares her story of redemption. And the gospel is presented. And what happens then is you see that her life has been transformed. And then she impacts other people because she sees them differently now. Because the truth has transformed her heart, and it transforms her life, and then her life touches other people's lives so that the truth can transform their lives, and that's what this looks like. And so what does it look like for you? Now, what's your story? And how does God redeem that? Because that's what He does. He takes ugly stuff, and He makes it beautiful. And how does God use that to present the gospel through your life? How does He bring you to a place where you recognize what it is to have God as your Father, and you start looking around your community, and you see there are Lazaruses all over the place? Whether it's the elderly, a lot of times we just, we just kind of go away to this, like, go away and we don't want to deal with you anymore. There's, there's unemployed people in our church and, and there, there's refugees in our church and there are refugees. There's refugees that come to this community, this city, and they just need friends. They just need somebody to help them know how to, like, live in this country. Or foreign exchange students in high school and colleges, there's lonely people, just like your neighbors just might need somebody to listen to them. But if we don't even see them, because we're so consumed with ourselves because the truth hasn't transformed our hearts to where we start having a heart like God. You've been transformed? And you just think about the people that we come into contact with all the time. The unemployed people in our church, let me say something. They shouldn't have to call the church office to get money. They shouldn't have to go to an organization. Now, if you need money, you call the church office. But let me just say this to the believers in our church. We should know each other enough to be able to know needs, and we should want to meet those needs. Because the church is a group of people. It's not just an organization. You don't just send them to an organization. You should be able to take care of one another. Or, or men in our church. You've got single women in our church. Let me tell you something. You should be looking out for them to protect them. They're not to be preyed upon because of our lustful desires. See, these are evidences of lack of transformation. But when we've been transformed, then we care for other people. And we feed hungry people. And we help unemployed people. We listen to people in their needs. And you pray for people. And you actually care have you been transformed? See, the guy in this passage, he didn't get it. And so he says to Abraham, would you send Lazarus back to my brothers? Because then they'll get it. And Abraham says, no. They've got the same truth you had. And look at how responsible you're being held. If they're not going to let the truth transform their heart, they're not going to be convinced by anything. But if they see someone raised from the dead, then they'll believe. No, no, they won't. If you keep reading the Gospels, ironically, a few months later, you come to John chapter 11. And there's a guy who's been dead for four days. And ironically, his name is Lazarus. A different Lazarus, but his name's Lazarus. He's been in the tomb for four days. That's dead, okay? You're dead when you're in there for four days. You didn't just like fall asleep real heavy, okay? He's dead. And Jesus says, come out. And the guy comes out. And then I love the language in the New American Standard. He's got grave clothes on, and Jesus says, unbind him. Let the grave clothes fall off. Give him freedom. And he walks out alive in freedom. And you know what the Pharisees do? They believe. No, they don't. You read John chapter 12, you know what they say? We've got to kill Jesus or everybody's going to believe in him. And then they kill Jesus. And he raises himself from the dead three days later. And the Pharisees, you know what they do? They believe. No, they don't. There's 500 eyewitnesses. And the Pharisees, most of them, don't believe. But some people do believe. People like Peter, who've denied Jesus, and then they get the truth in their heart. 
They get restored and redeemed. And he stands before a crowd of people at Pentecost, the largest crowd of people you could imagine having. And he proclaims the truth that they crucified Jesus Christ, but Jesus gave his life for them and he died to reconcile them to a loving God. But he's holy and he's righteous and they're not. So they need reconciliation. And he preaches this this message of repentance to them and they repent, 3,000 of them. And you know what they do? And they gather together in a home and they start to study the Bible. And they discuss about the words and who knows the Greek the best and who knows the Hebrew the best and they keep it to themselves because they don't want anybody else to find out and they want to impress each other with how smart they are. No, they don't. But they do gather around and they, they talk about the Bible because it's transforming their hearts. But then they go out into their community because it's transforming their lives and it impacts this world and it starts to spread like wildfire and it's why you and I have heard the gospel because people have been transformed at the heart level and their lives are changed and they care enough to look around and see the people around them that have needs and they reach out to those needs because their lives have been changed and then those lives are changed and they hear the truth and their hearts are changed and it spreads through a city and through a country and through the world when hearts are transformed. See, God's entrusted us as jars of clay, fragile, broken people, imperfect people, He's entrusted us with the most valuable truth in the entire universe that can not only change a life, but can change an eternity. And the question is, are we trustworthy with it? Are our hearts being transformed by it? Are we just being exposed to it? And if our hearts are being transformed by it, are our lives being transformed by it? And the answer is not, go out and clean up your life. And the answer is not, be more transformed by the truth. The answer is, when you are exposed to the truth, you submit and you trust. Are you trustworthy with the truth? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you thankful that the power is not just in words on a page or not just in us and our willpower, but the power is in the power of the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ, that raised himself from the dead. That very power is at work within us. And we cry out to you as Ephesians 3.20 and say that, that you are able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine according to the power that's at work within us. So that Jesus Christ would be glorified. There'd be glory in the church and through Jesus Christ forever and ever. And God, that's what we pray. That in this generation, that you would continue to glorify your son, Jesus Christ, by the work that you do in our hearts and through our lives, by the power of the gospel you've implanted in us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.